Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical graduate and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. In celebration of the 50th year of women at Yale College and the 150th year of women at the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, we're recording a special series of podcasts focusing on women in science and women at Yale. My name is Kelsey Castle, and I'm a third-year PhD student in the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases. I'm Carrie Ann. I am a third-year student in genetics. And I'm Emma, a third-year student in cell biology. Today, we want to celebrate the stories of the first women to receive their PhDs at Yale. In 1892, 191 years after Yale was founded, 23 women entered Yale Graduate School. Two years later, seven of these women graduated with their PhDs. These women were Cornelia H.B. Rogers, Roman Languages and Literature, Sarah Buckley Rogers, History, Mary Augusta Scott, English, Laura Johnson Wiley, English, Elizabeth Deering Hanscom, English, Margareta Palmer, Mathematics, and Charlotte Fitch Roberts, Chemistry. Two years seems like a very fast turnaround to get a PhD, but it's important to note that these women were already highly, highly accomplished before they entered Yale Graduate School. Many had master's degrees, and many had been working in academic settings before resuming their studies when the doors of Yale opened to them in 1892. One of the things I remember vividly about my first time at Yale was during my interview weekend for the Yale Biological and Biomedical Sciences graduate program. I remember entering Sterling Memorial Library for the first time, rounding the corner of the main hall, and seeing the portrait of these seven women hung proudly. It serves as a reminder of the past achievements of women in academia and women in science at Yale and in the U.S. It reminds us of how far we've come in the past 100 years and the work that still needs to be done to make academia a more welcoming environment for everyone. At the time these women received their PhDs, it would still be 26 years before women gained the right to vote in the U.S. Similar to Carrie Ann, I also first encountered this portrait at my interview for the Yale Biological and Biomedical Sciences PhD program. And I remember being in awe of the courage that these women had to enter the world of academia while it still wasn't very accepting of women. I always make sure to take anyone who comes to visit me at Yale to Sterling Memorial Library so that they can see this portrait for themselves and celebrate the accomplishments of these women. The portrait is relatively new. It was completed by artist Brenda Slamini in 2015 and added to the Yale Library on April 5, 2016. The positioning of each woman is deliberate. Brenda Slamini used paper dolls to arrange the seven women in the scene. The arrangement both celebrates the individual each holds an object important to her studies, and places all seven women together in a group. While not united in their specific discipline, these women are united by the harsh treatment and ridicule that they received as the few women on campus at the time. They are united in their intellect, their character, power, and strength. Interestingly, the five women earning their PhDs in the humanities are all sitting while the two earning PhDs in the sciences are standing at the back of the group. 
The portrait is relatively small, but it's bold and eye-catching and memorable. In this episode, we're going to go into detail about the lives and scholarly contributions of each one of these seven women, focusing particularly on two women, Margareta Palmer and Charlotte Fitch Roberts, who earned their PhDs in STEM. We must recognize upfront that all seven of these women are white, and it wasn't until 1926 that Othelia Cromwell earned her PhD in English, becoming the first African-American woman to earn a PhD at Yale. A portrait of Othelia Cromwell was commissioned in December of 2016. We also celebrate her story. We would also like to highlight the first two African-American women to graduate from Yale School of Medicine, Beatrix McCleary and Yvette Faye Francis McBarnett. These women were admitted to the Yale School of Medicine in 1948 and 1950, respectively, and they went on to make impactful contributions in their respective fields. If you would like to read more about the Yale portrait or about the stories of these amazing women, there are a series of articles by the Yale Women Faculty Forum. We have used these articles as references throughout compiling information for this episode. I'll start by addressing the stories of the five non-STEM PhDs included in this painting. First up is Cornelia H.B. Rogers, who earned her BA at Wellesley College before completing her PhD at Yale. Her dissertation on the development of the Spanish language was entitled a sentence that I cannot read because it's not modern Spanish. I had trouble translating the title because I believe it's written in Castellano, so she was studying an old language that preceded the modern Spanish language. I could be wrong, but it did not directly translate to the dialect of Spanish used in Spain today. After graduating, she went on to become an associate professor of Romance Languages at Vassar College for 10 years before her death in 1907. Cornelia's sister, Sarah Buckley Rogers, also earned her PhD in the same year and is featured in the painting as well. Sarah earned her BA from Columbia in 1889 and an MA from Cornell in 1891. During her time at Columbia, the undergraduate study for women was discontinued and incorporated with the sort of sister college, Bernard College. Her Yale PhD dissertation was titled The Rise of Civil Government and the Federation in Early New England. Unfortunately, Sarah also died in 1907, only two weeks after her sister. It was interesting to me, but I couldn't find any information on, on why they had passed away uh, at the same time. Next, in the Featured in the painting is Mary Augusta Scott, who earned her BA from Vassar College. She also earned a master's from Vassar while she was teaching there, and then her PhD dissertation at Yale was titled The Elizabethan Drama, especially in its relations to the Italians of the Renaissance. She went on to become a professor of English language and literature at Smith College, and she's extremely well known for editing and publishing the essays of Francis Bacon. Another woman who studied uh, English literature and is featured in this painting is Laura Johnson Wiley, who also attended Vassar College. A lot of these women did because it was one of the few higher education colleges in, uh, for women in New England that was very well known at the time. Uh, Vassar College still has a lot of information on her online, so it's interesting to check out. It said that she in entered Vassar for her BS, but was behind her fellow classmates at the time and wasn't even able to spell very well. Despite her lack of education prior to entering college, she graduated as the valedictorian in 1877. Then she earned her PhD from Yale studying sources of English criticism. She went on to become a professor of English as va at Vassar as well, and then later the chair of the English department. The last woman featured in this painting who did not study in STEM was Elizabeth Deering Hanscom, 
who earned her BA in English from uh, University of Boston, and then her PhD dissertation was on the study of Pierce Plowman, which is a famous piece of literature from the Middle Ages and contains the first references to Robin Hood tales. Elizabeth went on to teach English at Smith College for a number of years. Thanks, Kelsey, for sharing the stories of the first five women to earn PhDs in the humanities at Yale. I'm excited to share a little about Margareta Palmer, who was the first woman at Yale to earn her PhD in mathematics. Her dissertation and scholarly work were in astronomy, and she's celebrated today as one of the first female astronomers in the United States. In the portrait, she stands in the back of the group, with one hand on her hip and the other holding the legs of a golden telescope. She wears a bow tie, a blazer, and a matching belt adorning a simple long skirt. Her eyes glance straight ahead in confidence. Dr. Palmer was born in Brantford, Connecticut on August 29, 1862, to Father Isaac Palmer, a farmer, and Mother Mary Palmer. She earned her BA from Vassar College in 1887. While at Vassar, she was mentored by Maria Mitchell, who is widely considered the first woman astronomer in America. Mitchell was the first woman to become a professor of astronomy and the first to become the director of an observatory in the U.S. Numerous of Maria Mitchell's former students led in academic scholarship and social movements at the time, evidence of their strength and intellect and character and of the influence of their mentor. Margareta Palmer took two classes under Maria Mitchell, Astronomy 3 in fall 1885 and Astronomy 4 the following year. Following graduation, Margareta Palmer worked as an assistant at the Vassar Observatory, directed by Maria Mitchell. She next taught Latin at Vassar and then became an assistant at the Yale Observatory. The late 1880s were a time of change in the sciences, particularly in astronomy. The book Women Scientists in America, Struggles and Strategies to 1940 by Margaret W. Rossiter describes a, quote, separate labor market for women in sciences in the 1880s and 1890s. While women began to gain the same degrees as men, they were not granted equal jobs as men. Instead, as writer Margaret Rossiter describes, there were, quote, feminine jobs for women in science. In the 1880s, larger budgets were available for scientific research, which allowed the hiring of assistants and staff, and this made space available for women in astronomy, particularly as computers for the projects of leading men. A famous example of this was the actions of Edward Pickering at the Harvard College Observatory. In 1881, Edward Pickering actually fired his male computational assistant and gave the job to Williamina P. Fleming, his housekeeper. Williamina Fleming was notable in many ways. She was a Scottish immigrant, she was divorced, and she was a mother. She had a public education, not a, a fancy degree, but she was a strong mathematician and astronomer, and she impressed Pickering with her work. She stayed at the observatory for 30 years, and was even given a leadership position. She hired other women as assistants at the observatory, who each made meaningful contributions to large projects. Williamina Fleming spoke out about women in astronomy. At the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, she gave a speech titled, quote, A Field for Women's Work in Astronomy. I kind of cringe at the phrase women's work, but I recognize that this was a huge step forward for women in science, even if they were relegated to assistant positions and just seen as computers and not deep novel thinkers. 
It started a path forward to including women in academia and celebrating the important insights and skills of women in science. Other large observatories, including Yale, began to hire women assistants around this time. This is where Margaret de Palmer found herself when Yale Graduate School finally opened its doors to women. Dr. Palmer's dissertation, published in Transaction of the Astronomical Observatory of Yale University in 1893, was titled, quote, Determination of the Orbit of Comet 1847-6. Comet 1847 was very meaningful to Dr. Palmer. It was discovered by her mentor Maria Mitchell at Vassar, and I want to read a quote from the introduction of her dissertation. So Dr. Palmer writes, quote, to most astronomers, the comet 1847-6 is of interest chiefly for the reason that, according to the determination of its orbit by G. Rumker in 1857, it seemed to belong to the comparatively small class whose orbits show a distinctly hyperbolic character. To the woman, however, who turns her attention to astronomy, this comet is conspicuous as one of the few that have been discovered by a woman and probably the only one that has ever been discovered independently by two women. Unquote. This comet had first been seen by Maria Mitchell and then, a few days later, by Frau Rumker, the wife of the director of the Hamburg Observatory. Rumker had previously determined the orbit of this comet, but there were new star and sun positions available, and this encouraged Dr. Palmer to undertake a new calculation. This comet was remarkable because at the time, its hyperbolic orbit was considered relatively rare. This comet only passed through our solar system once, with the sun acting as a slingshot. To continue in Dr. Palmer's own words on why she chose to study this comet, she writes, Quote, but the student whose first knowledge of the heavens has been gained under the direction of Maria Mitchell has an added reason for regarding with special interest the course through space of the body whose discovery brought before the astronomical world the young Nantucket comet seeker, the first American woman to gain such notice. Unquote. Dr. Palmer is considered the first woman to ever receive a PhD for astronomy in the U.S., after earning her Ph.D., Dr. Palmer continued to work at the Yale Observatory. Her title was as a computer for 1847 to 1912, a research assistant from 1912 to 1923, and in 1923 she was given the title instructor. Dr. Palmer calculated the orbits of many comets and analyzed the orbits of Jupiter's satellites, although she did, she did not complete these latter calculations due to an illness. Dr. Palmer also contributed to an index of the positions of around 900,000 stars. In 1917, the article Yale Index to Star Catalogs was published and it remained an important resource throughout the 20th century, although updated indices were developed. Dr. Palmer was also the co-author of the 1927 article General Catalog of Trigonometric Stellar Parallaxes. This article gave the stellar parallaxes, uh, or the distance of a star from the Earth, of 1,870 stars. Dr. Palmer undertook massive, complex, and ambitious projects in her career. In addition to her scientific calculations, Dr. Palmer also worked in the Yale Library and wrote articles on religion and religious education. 
Dr. Palmer attended St. John's in New Haven and was active in teaching. She actually wrote two religious writings. Um, they were titled Teacher's Notes on Our Book of Worship and Teacher's Notes on the Church Catechism. I could not find much information on her personal life. As is common in this time, it seems she did not marry or have children. Her life was one of scholarship and teaching. Dr. Palmer died at the age of 62 due to complications from a car crash in New Haven, Connecticut. If you would like to learn more about Margaret Palmer, I found a lot of information in her obituary, which was published in the Obituary Record of Yale Graduates, her biography by the Yale Women Faculty Forum, a CSWP Gazette newsletter on the Committee on the Status of Women in Physics of the American Physical Society, December 1983, Volume 3, Issue 4, titled Maria Mitchell's Famous Students, and an article in the Vassar Encyclopedia of Distinguished Alumni. Charlotte Fitch Roberts is the first woman to earn a PhD from Yale in chemistry. Her dissertation and scholarly work is centered around the field of stereochemistry. Stereochemistry is the relative arrangements of atoms within a molecule. Understanding stereochemistry is really important for fields such as organic chemistry, and I very distinctly remember learning about stereochemistry in my intro orgo classes. In the portrait, she's standing at the back of the group, wearing a tan dress, holding up a round bottom flask full of some purple liquid. I honestly feel like you could write an entire dissertation about all of the symbolism wrapped up in this painting. But as a scientist uh, and not an art historian, that's probably not my place. <laughs> Dr. Roberts was born in February 13th, 1850, to Horace and Mary Roberts in New York City. A few years after she was born, the family moved to Greenfield, Massachusetts. She went to Wellesley in the fall of 1876 and graduated four years later in 1880. After graduating, she worked in chemistry at Wellesley. Um, she became an instructor in 1882, an associate professor in 1886, and a full professor by 1894. In 1892, she joined the other women at Yale to earn her PhD and graduated in 1894. Just as a reminder, she was already an associate professor in chemistry at Wellesley when she began her PhD studies, and she was promoted to full professor the same year that she got a PhD. It's incredible to me that these women were so incredibly accomplished before they even received their doctoral degrees, and it makes me wonder why these women were admitted to these types of programs earlier, since they were already doing that high level of academic work. In 1896, she published a book entitled The Development and Present Aspects of Stereochemistry. This is believed to be the first text written in English about stereochemistry. Yale professor Frank Gooch called her book the clearest exposition of which we have knowledge of the principles and conditions of stereochemistry, and there is nothing in English which covers similar ground so broadly and lucidly." Unquote. Dr. Roberts was clearly very impactful in the field of stereochemistry, and she also worked with some of the other leading scientists in the field at the time. In 1885 to 1886, she studied at Cambridge and worked with Sir James Dewar, 
who was a Scottish chemist and physicist who invented the vacuum flask as a method to research liquefaction of gases. In 1899 to 1900, she studied in Berlin with Professor Lieberman and Professor Van Hoff. Um, for anyone who's taken college level chemistry, you've probably heard Van Hoff. He was a huge name in theoretical chemistry and one of the great authorities on stereochemistry. Dr. Roberts' later work um, was more focused on the history of her field, and in 1912 to 1913, she studied the life and work of Paracelsus and his role, as well as the role of other um, alchemists and the development of chemistry. She suddenly passed away in 1917. There are now named chemistry professorships after her at both Wellesley and at Yale. Now, I learned most of this information from a wonderful profile written about her in the Wellesley Alumni Magazine, where the authors raved about her interactions with students. She is clearly a very gifted scientist and educator. The authors of this profile about her said that seldom is given to anyone a nature so buoyant, so full of warm and vivid life, united with a mind so clear, so accurate and retentive, so swift in its activity. Unquote. If you would like to learn more about her, I would highly recommend looking up this wonderfully written article. While the first seven women earned their PhDs from Yale in 1894, it was not until 1926, 32 years later, that Otilia Cromwell earned a PhD in English from Yale, making her the first African-American woman to receive a PhD from Yale. Dr. Cromwell's story is truly inspiring. When she started her PhD, she was 48 years old and already a highly accomplished scholar and educator. Throughout her life, she was an advocate of racial and gender equality. Her most influential work was The Life of Lucretia Mott, a biography of the abolitionist and suffragette, which is still cited today. Dr. Cromwell died in 1892 at the age of 98. In learning about Dr. Cromwell's life and legacy, I relied on a documentary by Smith College, her biography written by the Women Faculty Forum at Yale, and the book Unveiled Voices, Unvarnished Memories, The Cromwell Family in Slavery and Segregation, 1692-1972, through 1972, written by her niece, Adelaide Cromwell. Dr. Oterio Cromwell was born in Washington, D.C. in 1874. Her father, John Wesley Cromwell, was an influential civil rights activist, lawyer, teacher, and journalist. Her mother, Lucy McGuinn, died when Dr. Cromwell, the oldest of six children, was only 12 years old. After graduating from minor normal school, Dr. Cromwell taught in Washington, D.C. schools and took classes at Howard University. In 1897, she transferred to Smith College at the age of 24 and graduated in 1900 as the first African-American to graduate from Smith. Smith has a really nice short documentary on Dr. Cromwell's life, her time at Smith, her academic scholarship and legacy at Smith today, which is honored annually along with the work of her niece, Dr. Adelaide Cromwell, on Cromwell Day. While at Smith, Dr. Cromwell had to live separately from the other students and she was housed pretty far away from campus. In her third year, though, a professor took her in so that she could live closer and be more included in the campus life. The Smith documentary quotes numerous letters that Dr. Cromwell wrote to her father while at Smith, and then she describes how hard she's working and studying and reading with little time for anything else. These letters also capture her enthusiasm for her studies. After graduating from Smith, Dr. Cromwell again taught in D.C., 
at the M Street High School and at Armstrong Manual Training School. In 1910, she received a master's from Columbia University. Even after earning her master's degree, she took summer classes at the University of Chicago and again at Columbia University. In 1922, she began her Ph.D. at Yale with an academic scholarship. Her dissertation was titled Thomas Hayward, Dramatist, a study in the Elizabethan drama of everyday life, which was published by the Yale University Press in 1928. In a letter to her father, she describes the hot summer days in New Haven, the cool nights, and her days reading in the Yale Library. She also describes the process of choosing a subject for her dissertation. She decides on Elizabethan dramas in part because she wants to write about something on which her advisors are experts. She writes in a letter to her father, quote, This is my only opportunity for training, and training is needed for any output which is more than ephemeral or interesting to an unrestricted group of general readers, unquote. Dr. Cromwell valued her time of training at Yale and used what she learned to become an influential teacher and scholar. After earning her Ph.D., she became a professor at Minor Teachers College in Washington, D.C., and taught there until 1944. She was honored with an honorary degree from Smith College in 1950. She was a highly respected teacher and scholar. The Board of Education of the District of Columbia stated in 1944, when she retired, quote, The excellence of Professor Cromwell's training was reflected in her teaching. She developed among her students a keen appreciation of beauty and truth. She daily emphasized the value of thoroughness and open-mindedness in her own classroom preparation. The influence she exerted in her position cannot be easily estimated encouraging young students to pursue graduate work in leading universities, stimulating them to write. She was never too busy to listen to their problems or to entertain them in small groups in her home. Unquote. Dr. Cromwell collaborated with Eva P. Dykes and Lorenzo Dow Turner to compile a collection of writings by black authors. The goal of the book was to use the text for classroom study to encourage the teaching and analysis of the writing of black authors to provide, quote, the opportunity to embrace in true Catholicity the spirit writings that constitute a significant part of the total American output, unquote. Dr. Cromwell followed in her father's legacy, advocating for racial and gender equality. Her most famous work was The Life of Lucretia Mott, published in 1958, and written after she retired from her professorship at Minor Teachers College. If you would like to learn more about the life of Dr. Otilia Cromwell and the Cromwell family, I would encourage you to check out the writings of her niece, Dr. Adelaide Cromwell, particularly Unveiled Voices, Unvarnished Memories, The Cromwell Family in Slavery and Segregation, 1692-1972. through 1972. Dr. Adelaide Cromwell was also a highly influential teacher and scholar and talks about the discrimination her family faced, including Dr. Otelia Cromwell, as she pursued higher education and a scholarly career. I have really enjoyed learning about the life and the work of Dr. Otelia Cromwell. Her lifelong love of learning and her dedication to her studies and to teaching are all inspiring. Dr. Cromwell's portrait was painted by Yale alumna Jennifer Packer and was unveiled in the fall of 2018 at Croon Hall. We also wanted to take some time to highlight the first two African-American women admitted to the Yale School of Medicine. 
Beatrix McCleary Hamburg was the first African-American woman to be admitted to the Yale School of Medicine and the first African-American to graduate from Yale Medical School in 1948. She was born in Jacksonville, Florida, and pursued medicine in the footsteps of her father. She was the first self-identified African-American student to attend Vassar College as well. However, an African-American student had attended earlier, but had self-identified as white. After graduating from the Yale School of Medicine, she did her residency at Grace New Haven Hospital and the Yale Psychiatric Institute. Her research was in psychology and focused on child development and psychology. She worked to bridge the gap between adults and adolescents by studying behavioral issues in adolescents and trying to understand how their behavioral issues are influenced by the modern world. She carried out her research both independently and with her husband, Dr. David Hamburg, who she met at Yale. She held many professional positions, including as a professor at Stanford, Harvard, and Mount Sinai, where she continually advanced our understanding of adolescent psychology. Yvette Frey Francis McBarnett was the second African-American woman to be admitted to the Yale School of Medicine. She graduated from Yale in 1950. She was born in Jamaica and came to New York City when she was a teen. She started undergraduate at Hunter College at the age of 14 and graduated in three and a half years with a degree in physics. She then got a master's in chemistry at Columbia and finally enrolled at the Yale School of Medicine at the age of 19. She was the first African-American intern at Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. Dr. Francis spent her career dedicated to studying and treating sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is a genetic blood disorder that prevents red blood cells from carrying oxygen effectively and is especially prevalent in African-American populations. She's credited with being one of the first people to treat this disease in children using antibiotics 15 years before the effectiveness of those drugs was scientifically proven. In doing so, she likely saved many young lives. Dr. Francis was also appointed to a White House Advisory Committee during the Nixon administration. The efforts of this committee led to the 1972 Sickle Cell Anemia Control Act, which provided funding for research into this disease. Over her entire career, Dr. Francis was an advocate for research into sickle cell anemia and was always at the forefront of methods for disease detection and management. So one of my biggest questions while researching this podcast was why women were allowed to attend prestigious graduate education systems long before they were allowed into many undergraduate colleges in the U.S. For example, there were 100 years between when the first woman earned her Ph.D. at Yale and when the first woman was allowed to enroll as an undergraduate at Yale. This seems counterintuitive to me. I always assumed that the education was limited to women because women were not expected to like tax themselves with research or elaborate on thought when they could be sewing or having more babies. I don't know. After hours of Googling, I learned that there isn't a clear answer to this. Just like the logic used to prevent women from entering higher education, the logic allowing them to enter graduate school but not enter undergraduate school in the U.S. is flawed and vague. Margaret W. Rossiter called this period between 1868 and 1890 the long latent phase for women's education where women could be admitted for PhDs as special students or under special circumstances. And this was the same period when women weren't allowed into many co-ed undergraduate colleges in the U.S., particularly extremely prestigious ones like the Ivy Leagues that we know of now. 
Yale's decision to include women for admission into graduate programs in the 1890s was accompanied by a few other Ivy Leagues at the time, like the University of Pennsylvania, Columbia, Brown, Stanford, and, and the University of Chicago. Yale and UPenn would not admit women to the undergraduate programs, however, and Columbia and Brown only admitted women to their coordinate colleges for women undergrads. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Bernard had partnered with Columbia to admit women to undergrad. Stanford and Chicago, however, did admit women with full access to all aspects of higher education. Um, unfortunately, despite these differences, over one half of the doctorates awarded to women from between 1877 and 1900 were given by just four universities. 36 of those doctorates were awarded at Yale 29 at University of Chicago, 28 at Cornell, and 20 at NYU. I should start by saying that the move towards co-educational institutions varied by the reach in the U.S. and public versus private institutions. Before 1860, I apologize, I'm jumping around in time a bit here, only 54 universities were co-educational, and of them, only one was in New England, and that was Bates College in Maine. In 1897, only 55% of institutions of higher education were co-ed. This fraction dropped to 29% among colleges in the Northeast, and at the time, most colleges were in the Northeast of the U.S. In the 1960s and 1970s, when elite liberal arts schools like Princeton, Yale, and Dartmouth, also located in the Northeast, began to allow women, they were the last of the schools to do this. State schools and many other newer colleges had been co-educational for decades in the U.S., Another aspect is that even as PhD students, women who were admitted weren't fully integrated and they were rarely seen across the university like you would as an undergrad. So admitting them to just a PhD program and never admitting them through a co-educational undergrad university made it easier to hide the fact that they had admitted a woman. So admitting them was based on an agreement between the advisor and the student, similarly to how some graduate programs work now, but otherwise it could be kept relatively quiet. It wasn't the same admission process that was used for undergrad. Mary Roth Walsh, who applied to Harvard Medical School twice in 1847 and again in 1850, was, was told that it was inexpedient to admit women. I had to Google this word, so the fact that she understood it already demonstrates that she was more than deserving of being admitted to Harvard's medical school at the time. Essentially, the admissions committee had ruled that it would not be advisable or prudent to admit her code for highly qualified, but they couldn't BS a reason quickly enough. Um, a similar story told by uh, Winifred Edgerton, who applied to Columbia University in 1884 for a graduate degree in astronomy and mathematics, also exemplifies the consideration of only exceptional women for PhDs. Quote is, the case was a matter of expediency. The adjunct professor, John Crown Reese, who would serve as Egerton's mentor, needed a graduate assistant as much as Egerton needed a place to conduct her research. The board recognized the advantages of the situation and relented in January of 1884. In his diary, Dix assured himself that the case was of an absolutely exceptional nature and they established no precedent for other women at the time. She earned, She eventually earned her PhD cum laude in 1886. I'm sorry, but how exceptional did these women need to be then? Do they? Do they? They were already exceptional enough to be considered for a PhD, and that's a lot to ask of anyone. But then to say that she needed to be exceptional enough to ignore the sexist tendencies of the time and accept her implies just an extreme level of determination of and intelligence on behalf of Winifred Edgerton. Reach. I'm extremely grateful for these ex- exceptional women who paved the way for a somewhat average PhD student like me. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Stay tuned for our second episode celebrating more amazing female scientists shortly. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Amelia Hallworth and Wei Ying. Finally, thanks to you for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts.